A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. You are now listening to Footy Prime, the podcast, hosted by Danny DiCchio, Craig Forrest, and James Sharman. You know what, fellas? It's episode 10. Episode 10. We've made double digits. I don't think anyone thought we'd do this. But we've, we've made it so far. Haven't been kicked off the air by whoever. <laughs> Footy Prime is alive and well. Sharman, Forrest, and Dickio here. How you doing, fellas? Uh, okay. okay. Oh, don't, don't oh, sell geez. it so much there, Deech. You okay? Well, yeah. I'm just happy I got in this morning because this fucking snow's doing my head in already. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a surprise, eh, that we get snow in Canada. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. Deech. Hawaii's well, getting I'm doing closer great. and closer. Uh, I have a good weekend and... Uh, Great football over the weekend. Great football. Some firings to talk about later as well. We love a good firing here. Um, surprisingly, Watford can their manager. Who knew? Shock. <laughs> Shock. Horror. Um, we're going to talk about power in the game today. And um, later today is a Monday, of course. There will be the Belonda Or winner announced, speaking of power and what that, that means. Uh, as it stands right now, at time of recording, uh, that has not been announced. But maybe our next guest... In fact, our first guest in today's show uh, will divulge who won it, because it's one of the most powerful men in world football, FIFA vice president, president of CONCACAF, and a Canadian boy to boot, Vita Montaliani. Uh, Vita, welcome to Footy Prime. Hey, James. Thank you. Great to be on. So listen, I know, I know FIFA have their, their best awards, and the Blonde Ore is separate to what it used to be, but you must have an inkling, right? Can you, can you divulge? Can you give us a little... Suggestion of who's won this year? No, actually, you know, it, it is really separate. It's a separate entity. So uh, we we went our own way with with our own awards. Um, this is uh, Ballon d'Or is done by uh, a French newspaper. So um, you know, you never know which way they're going to go. So I'm not sure. Well, um, probably probably whoever won our best award is, is probably an inkling of it. But uh, um, so we'll see. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, maybe the maybe defenders will win it this year. Maybe it's a Virgil Van Dyke situation. It bloody should be a defender. It should be a Virgil Van Dyke. Sorry, Leo, yeah. but but it's, it's time yeah. that uh, a defender won this uh, thing. Yeah, I don't. I actually don't disagree. I mean, I mean, it's it's not a, the most talented player. It's the, the best player of the year, and it's kind of hard to go against Virgil Van Dyke. It, it really is. So, Victor, um, almost four years on the job now which is quite amazing, yeah. actually. Um, obviously, when you took over the helm at CONCACAF, you had a lot to clean up, uh, both at FIFA and, and uh, on the Confederation level. Um, are, are you satisfied that it's been cleaned up sufficiently? Yeah, listen, at CONCACAF, um, I'm actually uh, quite proud of uh, sort of the direction that our members took. And, and we came with a completely new philosophy of, of sort of one CONCACAF. Um, making sure that everybody uh, is on the same page when we make decisions. Um, that um, you know, it's an organization that deals with things um, with a lot of a empathy, with a lot of uh, transparency, and obviously with a lot of communication uh, and input from everyone. And I think um, when you come to our meetings and you come to our congresses, um, the feeling is uh, palatable. You, you can sense it. Uh, Listen, we still have our debates. We still have our differences. It's football. Um, um, you know, you started the question about who's the Ballon d'Or winner. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with us. So that's football. <laughs> that's okay. But I think it's the way we conduct business. Um, and you know, we're we're uh, definitely uh, we're not. Uh, it's not a destination that we're looking for. It's, this is an ongoing journey. But uh, I think we could be very satisfied in, in terms of how how Concacaf is now run. And some of the things we've done, which is really put football first, um, and I, I, I don't think uh, that uh, you can deny that uh, everything we do now is, is is putting football first. But we still uh, we still have a ways to go. 
Victor, I want to go into there's a couple of things the the Nations League, which uh, you had a massive part uh, uh, putting that together, as well as World Cup qualifying. Uh, I know a lot of soccer fans in Canada are confused, and uh, to be honest, we have been as well about uh, how this is working and how World Cup qualifying has come about, and what your decisions were uh, to come to a conclusion on uh, how this would uh, would actually be the format moving forward for all nations. Yeah, listen, first of all, they're two different things, and I think that's one of the biggest confusions. Um, you know, Nations League was, was something that actually I, um, this is even before uh, the Europeans uh, launched theirs. In fact, they were still in the draft mode, and I actually, some, uh, the two guys who kind of conceptually thought about the Nations League in Europe are, are guys that I know quite well, and so this was like four years ago before I even announced my candidacy. Uh, they were talking about this thing that they wanted to do, and, and I looked at it and I went, uh, you know, uh, obviously we can't do it at the same. Uh, ours has some other rea- realities in CONCACAF, as, as you know, uh, in terms of travel and other things. So it was something that I thought uh, would definitely be a watershed for our, our region. One of the things that we lacked in our region is games. Um, most of our nations, in fact, the only two countries that regularly play in a four-year period the maximum amount of games, which is 40 or more, depending on how well you do in competition, is Mexico and the U.S. Every other nation would struggle to even, some would not hit single digits, uh, more than double digits. Some would never get in their 20s, and that's including Canada. Why? A lot of it's economic reasons. Some of it is logistical reasons. And so I thought that the nations they would change the uh, narrative in our region, that people were now going to be talking about and thinking about football. And this is why, you know, we went through many, many drafts, and this is then it was ultimately launched. And and one of the things we talked about was uh, we also wanted to expand the Gold Cup, which we did, and change the youth competitions, which we did. Um, and so those are all the things that were a priority for us. And, and in essence, what we did is we went in a four what we used to have in a four-year period, we would play just over 100 games in the Confederation. That's the entire confederation for 41 countries, like 120 games or something like that. We now play over five, almost 500 games in a four-year period um, because of Nations League, because of all the things we've done. And so this is now, you know, forcing, I guess, our countries to start playing more meaningful games, uh, less meaningless friendlies. But also the friendlies they do get, it's a little easier to, to try to get them because we aligned ourselves with other confederations in terms of a calendar. And this is was really the concept of the Nations League. Um, and the World Cup qualifying then, one of the, because our priority was to get more football, um, one of the things that happened was that World Cup qualifying, um, we didn't know which way it was going to go because FIFA was talking about an expanded Qatar already, uh, not just expanded for our World Cup that we won the bid for. Um, but we started uh, realizing that because of Nations League and because of all the other games that we were putting into the ecosystem, that World Cup qualifying could not be played like it had been in the past, where you had round one, two, three, and four, and five, I think, was ultimately the hex. And so what happened was we had a very small window to fit World Cup qualifying, which was, I think, six FIFA dates, if, if I'm not uh, mistaken. We then noticed that we had to because of the calendar issues. Uh, and then obviously the, the biggest issue is the media rights issues. You see, we can't use Nations League as um, World Cup qualifying at all. Uh, you can use, it, it can be used for FIFA rankings because every game is, can be used for FIFA rankings. But you can't, you can't parlay a Nations League into World Cup qualifying rights because World Cup, the, the World Cup qualifying rights are, are not owned by CONCACAF. And they're actually not even owned by some of our countries. They have already sold them to third parties. That really complicates the ecosystem. And so what we decided to do was, uh, and this was in consultation with all our members. This is not something that was concocted out of somebody's office. Uh, this has been a three-year process where this it, it was full disclosure, full communication. And what we decided is we had to keep the hex, uh, again, for, for media rights principles. But we decided one of the biggest challenges we had, and Canada can appreciate this, is that the old system used to always start with having a FIFA ranking. And so 
I would always start around run the semifinal round or even the round before a few times because depending where we were in our FIFA ranking. But then what would happen is, as we know, we haven't made the hex in God knows how long, uh, I think since we were all in high school. And um, the um, what would happen is most of the countries, 29 of our 35 FIFA nations would watch football for two and a half to three years. They just watched the six teams playing the hex. And we felt as a confederation that was unacceptable, that people be watching football. And so uh, with this square peg that we had, that we can only fit uh, the World Cup qualifying in this specific time frame, as a group, as, 40, as 35 FIFA nations, we said we needed to keep the hex, but we needed to keep the dream alive for the rest of them. How do you keep the dream alive? And we came up with this other uh, format below where you still, even though you're not going to make the hex uh, from a ranking perspective, um, you still have an opportunity to play for two more years um, and get uh, an opportunity to get to the World Cup. And uh, and then we decided that the Nations League would count for the FIFA rankings, which gave you more points. And we decided to go right to the end. CONCACAF used to always cut it off, you know, and I think we can theorize why they used to cut it off way back when, early. We decided to go right to the end because it would give everybody an opportunity to play as many games as possible and get not only Nations League, but friendlies in as well. And as you saw by the results, at the end of the day, Greg, it doesn't matter what the format is, you gotta, you got to win. you got to win, and, uh, and uh, you got to get your results. And, uh, and the teams that have gotten their results in the Gold Cup and the Nations League are in a better position than others that are not. So um, is it a perfect system? No. Uh, would I prefer to do it a bit differently? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And this is a transit, transitory um, format because um, when we start qualifying for the 26th World Cup, it'll be, it won't be this format. It'll be a completely different format. Uh, we'll be able to do it, I think, uh, in, a, in a better way um, because uh, a lot of these issues that I talked about before will not be there. Plus, we have three countries that hopefully FIFA has decided to get, but I think I think uh, they will. Uh, the three countries that are hosting will be automatically in, and we get more spots. When would we so know, think- Vic? When would we know that about uh, automatic qualification for 2026? Uh, I would hope. Uh, I would hope that FIFA would make that decision uh, next year, I would hope. Right. And that would put more emphasis, you would think, on, on Nations Leagues as well, for, for these teams that yeah. qualify automatically. And I, yeah. And, and we, we need to unravel some of the media rights issues that have uh, existed. Um, and some of those issues have not exactly been great stories, as we know. Mm-hmm. In the past, uh, media rights has been the um, underpinning of some of the issues that happened in FIFA and in CONCACAF way back when. So uh, some of those issues have to be unraveled as we move forward in a new world. And I think once they are, I think a lot of these things are going to be a lot easier. Now, from Canada's perspective, Vic, um, I know you have some interesting ideas, and I, I tend to agree with them as far as, like I thought, Canada's best chance and really important would be them getting in the hex. However, are they the top three teams in that hex? Probably not. Um, which would leave them finishing fourth in a situation where they've been battered pretty heavily, potentially, as opposed to going the backdoor route, hammering most teams. And if you're good enough, you should be able to get down to the final semi and finals to be able to get a chance at that fourth place team. And that team would come in with a lot of momentum. Um, Is that your thoughts on it as well? I know you've got some interesting ideas about Canada's situation. Yeah, I mean... You know, this is. I'm talking as a fan now, not as not as a uh, president of a confederation. Um, you know, listen, and this is actually a discussion that is being had by a few countries that are in the same boat. I think that are looking at it and analyzing it and saying, um, you know, the hex might be a badge of honor to some degree. Um, and yeah, it looks great because you get, you know, you get three three direct spots, but. I think some countries that are developing, that are kind of really, you know, talented and, and maybe uh, not quite there yet. You've seen some of them really perform well in the last World Cup. So it wasn't, it's not just Canada that we're speaking about. Are saying, you know, uh, I know I'm. Uh, it's debatable whether I'm top three there, but it's not debatable whether I'm top three down. 
therefore, I should get to the semifinal or final down here quite comfortably. I know it's football and anything can happen. Um, and and it gives me another year to build my program and build some momentum and build some confidence with my young players. And then I might be in a better position to be ready for that playoff against that fourth place team who has uh, gone through probably a year of some very difficult matches. Um, and I might be in a better position. And I think that that debate is going on with a lot of countries and a lot of technical directors and even some coaches that I've spoken to. So there, there mm-hmm. is that debate and discussion. It's, I think it's an interesting point. Um, and I think Canada, Canada will be one of the countries in that mix that would, might be having that discussion at the coffee table. And you know, we, we you know, speaking of all these games for smaller countries, and uh, you're saying we're up to 500 games. Uh, that's great, obviously, for development and moving forward for a lot of nations who have not really felt that they've been relevant in the past. In Canada, we have the Canadian Premier League. Last year was the inaugural year. Uh, I know that you had a lot to do with putting that league together. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Canadian Premier League and after its first year and uh, the, the standard of play and the potential for development for these Canadian players getting almost a second chance. Yeah, um, I have to be honest. I, I was really surprised with the level of play. Um, and, and I, um, I didn't think it would have been that good. Um, I have to be honest. I agree. Um, you know, not only you know, not only the obvious results where they you know, you know uh, Calvary knocked off uh, the Whitecaps in the Canadian Championship, uh, knocked off their first team, not their reserve team. Uh, York probably should have knocked off the eventual champions, Montreal. Uh, but also uh, Forge, um, who went uh, you know uh, you know as a debutante actually did well in the CONCACAF League against some tough Central American teams. Um, and so those results, you know, are, are a little bit of a limit of, of sort of the quality that was in the league. But even watching uh, the games, and, you know, I've I watched a uh, significant amount of games in the league, um, um, I was quite surprised at the level of play. And, uh, you know, listen, I think, um, as I said, as I said uh, when I had the previous position, I think one of the most important things for one of the things I notice in my travels um, throughout the world is is that I think this is what this league is all about, and it's not taking nothing away from the tremendous job that the MLS has done in our countries um, in terms of uh, waking waking us up a little bit uh, over the last twenty years of what the potential is in some of the Canadian boys that have come through that system. But as a footballing nation, the one thing that you have to have. And the one thing you can never, ever, ever give away is your sovereignty. And I think your league, having that national league, whatever that national league is, you know, it might not be the EPL, it might not be Serie A, it might not be MLS. Now that's fine, but it's yours. And that's something that uh, every country has, every country is proud of, and, and it's a base for every country. And I think Canada finally has theirs. Um, after many years of going without one. Um, and um, I think it's, um, you know, uh, I think it's done well. I think the leadership is a strong leadership group, not only at the club level, but the league level. And, and I think the future is bright for that league. Fitzy, you mentioned the, the Voyagers Cup there. And this past weekend, week, there's been a, a lot of conversation on social media and, and around the footballing world in Canada about expanding that that tournament to include a lot of other teams, smaller teams, amateur clubs, very much an FA Cup type model. Is that something you you support? I mean, obviously, logistically, there's a lot of questions need to be answered, how you'd you'd make that happen. But down the road, can you see that coming to fruition? Yeah, I mean, when I was at the, when I was president of the CSA, uh, 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 we made the decision at the time when I was president and then I pushed for it to have the two kind of semi-pro or amateur, they're really amateur clubs from League One and uh, the PLSAQ uh, come into the Champions League, uh, Canadian Championship as it is now. Um, and so um, that already, that was kind of a precursor of ultimately having even some other teams, amateur teams, look into it. Now, uh, you need to be realistic about it, and I think uh, you can't expect an amateur club in Newfoundland to get drawn to play an amateur club in Burnaby and fly to Burnaby. That ain't happening. So I think, um, I think philosophically, I think absolutely, 
uh, in favor of it, but you need to be realistic, uh, look at it from a regional standpoint, and perhaps use the existing Canadian Amateur Championship uh, as a bit, bit of a precursor into that. So I think you know that's something I think has been uh, discussed even at the CSA level in the past. I'm not sure about now, uh, but I think um, you know I think as the competition grows, as we've seen it grow last year, as it's going to grow more with the expansion of the CPL, I think it's a realistic possibility you're going to have even more teams, um, more teams at the uh, sort of the base of the pyramid, maybe participate in the Canadian Championship. Hey Vic, and now uh, I'd like to move on just to uh, something slightly different. Uh, you know, I know you're part of the ethics committee for FIFA. Um, what are you your opinion on the biggest challenges for FIFA uh, at club level and ownership, uh, similar to say the Citigroup um, that own Manchester, they're in New York, Melbourne, I think they're in Uruguay as well. Um, and that type of model that we're seeing from some of these amazingly wealthy countries um, and almost kingdoms that are owning football teams. How do you see that? And is that a challenge for FIFA and world football? Yeah, well, just to clarify, um, Craig, I'm actually the chairman of the stakeholders committee, um, right. not the ethics committee. Ethics committee is an independent body. Ah. Uh, yeah, so I'm the chair of the stakeholders committee, which deals with, uh, you're right in terms of your question, which deals with all the stakeholders in the game. So on my committee, I have all the a lot of the big clubs, the, all the big leagues, uh, members, confederations. So it, it's a committee, for instance, we just passed the uh, regulation on the agents that just came through, uh, the new transport system, the clearinghouse, all those kind of things is something that uh, I'm responsible for on my committee. Uh, one of the issues is, is this one that you're tackling, too, is, uh, is sort of um, uh, ownership of, of multiple teams across uh, jurisdictions. Um, there's, you know, it, it, from a business perspective, uh, if I look at it as a businessman, it makes perfect sense. Like, why wouldn't you do that? You're expanding your brand. Um, you're, you have a bigger pool of players, a bigger pool of talent. It, 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 it makes sense. Um, no different than any other multinational corporation in the world of any other industry. So, you know, from, from that perspective, I'm not sure we should stop it. Where, where the problem comes in is the governance of it, okay? Because it's one thing me owning a lot of uh, coffee houses, uh, but it's another thing uh, me owning clubs, and now they're in competitions and competitions, different other competitions, and now now integrity comes into play, and I think this is where you know your questioning comes into line. Um, and how does it affect domestic competitions, for instance, right? So if, if, if I can transfer players from my Spanish club to my English club that's in second division, all of a sudden I get promoted. Whoa, what's going on here, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the issue, to be honest with you, is governance. Uh, one of the issues we're tackling is loans, for instance. Um, we've already um, pretty much agreed upon what the stakeholders hasn't been announced yet, but uh, on uh, how many loans you can have in and how many loans you can have out. Um, so I think where, where, where you have to look at it is, Craig, is the governance of it and governing, governing the business of football. Uh, and I think what's happened is, is that now FIFA through the stakeholders committee is taking a more, uh, we're taking a more aggressive approach and a lot of these things have to be governed at the FIFA level. They've been governed too long, uh, just at the league level. And the reality is that the leagues can only deal with their domestic situation and a lot of the leagues are governed by the clubs. Well, it, you know, with all due respect, it's like having, you know, it's not like having the, uh, you know, the prisoners run the, the, you know, the patients run the, the hospital. So <laughs> you can't really do that. Um, you know, there has to be a bit of a balance. And I think, I think if the international governing body weighs into some of these governance issues, I think for fans. Uh, it, it, it will allow a little bit better playing field where, yes, you can own multiple clubs, but you can't just do whatever you want as it relates to player transfers and all this kind of stuff. So um, it, it's it's a challenge moving forward in today's modern football world, uh, absolutely. But I think, uh, I, think um, I, I think our idea of trying to govern some of these issues is the right idea. Hey, Vic, I know you first and foremost that you are you were a very good soccer player, and you are a football fan first and foremost. I know that you were at Anfield last year for that 
Liverpool-Barcelona comeback, one of the most epic comebacks in European history at one of the most epic grounds in, in world football at Anfield. Uh, I know you were with some of the Barcelona people, but at the end of that game, when all the players went over to the cop end and were singing You'll Never Walk Alone, uh, I understand that you, you're pretty emotional about that, and I understand why. Um, and partial that reason is, you know, I don't think your wife will be listening, is because <laughs> I think your wedding song was You'll Never Walk Alone. So yeah, your amazing. wife probably thinks you're in tears because of that, <laughs> but I think it's more because of the football. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, um, <laughs> yeah, you know what? It was, um, it, it was an unbelievable evening for obvious reasons. Uh, I'm not a Liverpool fan, uh, per se. We'll forgive you. Uh, you know, obviously I'm a fan of Liverpool in terms of how they do their business. Peter Moore, who's the CEO, is a great guy. Uh, the club is obviously iconic. The ground is iconic. Um, but, um, you know, I went there for, for, for meetings, actually. Uh, I actually even met with Everton earlier in the day, who just won an award for their customers, for their social responsibility. And actually, they gave me a tour of that. It's unbelievable what they do in the community. Hmm. Uh, yeah, they got a trophy, before. finally. They got a trophy. That's what? good to good to hear. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so I, I went to the, uh, was at the match um, uh, and uh, actually had dinner with the Barcelona uh, president and the guys. And they were pretty confident. As they probably should have been. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Up 3 nothing, um, And then, obviously, we know what happened in the game. And as you rightly said, uh, you know, at the end of the game, um, the players went over to the cop end, and, and the song came on, and they started singing, and, and that was where I was. A lot of the kind of Liverpool legends were, were around me, and they were, it was like, like, if you're not, I don't care if you're, what fan uh, is your club, but, um, your hair stood on end, and it was pretty emotional. I, I, I admit, I was crying um, because just the power of the game. And uh, yeah, I, uh, um, I did. <laughs> I didn't actually tell my missus that uh, I said I get to pick one song. And, and that song, actually, I know everybody thinks it's a Liverpool song, which is that's who's made it iconic. But a lot of clubs in the world use that song, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if people know that, but. It's not, I mean, Liverpool has made it famous and they, I think they've owned it. But I, I, there's a few other clubs in the world. So it's an iconic football song, not just a Liverpool song. And so I picked that uh, as we were walking out of the church. And then I didn't tell her until a few years later. I think she heard it on TV and then she goes, I go, yeah, the football song. <laughs> so, so um, but anyway, and yeah, that had to something to play with it as well, uh, obviously. Uh, my emotions were not just related to football. Um, Come uh, on, let's be honest. Of marriage, uh, you know, uh, she, she deserves a shout out as well. Um, yeah. by, by the way, Victor, um, I was at the the FIFA Congress last year in, in Moscow, and there was a FIFA yeah, a FIFA match. Yeah, there was a FIFA match, and you were playing in that match, uh, and yeah. you you bossed it, man. You are actually pretty decent, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I'm pretty decent when the ball's at my foot. If it's not at my foot, forget about it. <laughs> Victor, thank you so much for this. I uh, really enjoyed it. I'd love to get you back on at some point uh, and keep up the good work. You know, I, I guess we are seeing progress on, on many fronts. And as football fans, we love to complain about a whole whack of stuff. But I think overall, we, we are seeing this region moving in the right direction. Yeah, no, listen, I appreciate that. Uh, listen, I, um, good luck to you guys. Uh, you, uh, you guys have done a tremendous job in the game, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing I, um, to be quite honest, the thing I'm most proud about yeah, is uh, my passport, uh, my flag, uh, which is undeniable. Uh, and also, to be honest with you, and I said, I said this to Craig not too long ago, but one of the things that I've noticed, and I think that we have to realize in, in Canada, and you guys are an epitome of it, is that we have a, we have a very good football culture, and we have really good football people. And I think, uh, I think we need to stand up and, and shout that out a little bit more than thinking that we're not a footballing country. We are. And we need to be proud of the people we have in it because we have some really good football people in this country from coast to coast. And, uh, and I think you guys are an epitome of that. And uh, good luck to you. Well, thank you, Victor. And well said. Yeah, we, we really appreciate that. We'll chat to you soon, hopefully. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Vic. FIFA Vice President and President of CONCACAF, Victor Montaliani. A really interesting chat there. And it's also frustrating when you see that still, all these years later, 
the region still shackled by some of the deals made by the previous regime in CONCACAF. Mm-hmm. I mean, how media deals are dictating how World Cup qualifying is being you know, uh, brought to us is, I think it's frustration too strong. Well, I, I, I don't think, think so. I think uh, the CONCACAF presidents, I think a few of them are in prison. And uh, there's <laughs> the Jack Warner in Trinidad and Tobago. In hiding. Should be in, yeah, he should be in prison. There's absolutely no question about it. And... Uh, I'm glad to see that the transparency of FIFA and CONCACAF has moved on such a, uh, in a, such a positive way, and it needed to be cleaned up. And uh, let's face it, uh, the FIFA brand is uh, one of the biggest brands in world, world sports, if not the biggest. And they have a lot of clout, and there's a lot of responsibility on them to, uh, to do the right things, and uh, they seem to be doing that at the moment. It makes good points about this. this I want to say it proposed, but it's been discussed, this expanded Canadian Championship. It would be great, wouldn't it, to involve amateur clubs at every level. Obviously, logistically, it's tough, and you've got to make it more of a regional thing, maybe include the uh, the Canadian Amateur Championship. Each, but you know, you're know, you at the grassroots level of the game. Do you think that's something that needs to happen at some point in this yes, country? Yes, 100%. I think there's a lot of men's teams around the country, this vast country that we live in, that would be itching to be involved in a tournament like that. And I think it would not only grow... The, the the game even more but the interest in, in a, a national cup Craig would be fantastic mm-hmm. you know for for teams in I don't know Saskatoon or teams in mm-hmm. in Edmonton for men's teams in Quebec to compete to get in the early rounds to possibly play against a mm-hmm. CPL team and then to possibly win that or progress and play yeah. against an MLS club. That's, well, because you know, I mean, when we look at the FA Cup, the oldest trophy in the world, um, competitive trophy, and we see the pageantry of those lower division yep. teams and the giant-killing yeah. opportunities, <laughs> it is exciting. And uh, the, the TV cameras always show up at those non-league yep. grounds against a big team, and the fields are in bad shape, the pitches are terrible, and, and uh, there's an opportunity there. And They're it doesn't happen it. often. But it does happen sometimes, and when it, it's it's quite something. Yeah. So uh, that would be something incredible for uh, the growth of the game, like you say, and the opportunity for some of these amateur clubs to, uh, you know, say they played in the Canadian Championship, oh, yeah. even if they don't go very far. Let's get the phrase, you know, the magic of the cup actually over here. You know, we hear about it in, in the FA Cup all the time, but yeah. to get over here would be fantastic. And like I just said, maybe we are actually a football nation here. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. we're, we're certainly on the cusp of it, I think. We're getting close, but yeah. still some work to be done there. But, uh, yeah, overall, a really interesting conversation there with Victor Montaliani. Uh, still no word on the Bologna or just yet, but I think we all agree it should be Virgil van Dijk. Um, power, as I mentioned, was the theme today. We saw our firings this weekend. Unai Emery gone at Arsenal. In comes Freddie Lundberg, the, the, the legend, the club legend, yeah. and the team doesn't bounce for him. 2-2. Yeah, <laughs> well. Again, they should have won. Uh, well, on paper, should have won, certainly, yeah. but it shows there's, there's a lot more issues there at play. But talking yeah. about power and ownership and firing so we saw obviously I just mentioned there Emery being fired we also saw of course as mentioned earlier today Kike Flores fired at Watford the Pozzo family are how should I say this politely uh, they're trigger happy yeah and <laughs> atypical of certain parts of the footballing world perhaps mm. well, well they're, their managers last approximately about a year is that what it is the yeah, average they change all the time I mean you look at the list of managers uh, going back to Brendan Rogers, and I don't know if the Pozzo family's involved then but uh, Zola um, forgot Flores Zola. he was 10 10, day, oh, 10 games this time right Flores yeah but that's the second stint yeah, yeah exactly and fired him again so but Italian football is a different kind of culture too right you know yeah. Deech, you played over there you played at Lecce of course Sampdoria did you ever come into contact with the ownership at either of those clubs that was very different to what you were used to? Yes, of course. Sampdoria were um, owned by a family at the time and uh, they actually sent someone over to London to kind of seal the deal because Napoli were were involved as well and I was, as I spoke before, I was going on a Bosman so it would have been a free transfer for a young player coming over from England. So Napoli was sniffing around? So Napoli was sniffing around To as replace well. Diego Maradona? Uh, I don't know if it was to replace Diego Maradona, but uh, no, it was maybe just, support him, support him. Yeah, but it was just a, a choice at those times. Yeah. Sampdoria were, were a very well-run club, but a very close-knit club. And then obviously went on loan to Lecce, where we had a crazy president in charge there. And I've got many a stories to tell. But 
One story that I can tell you was we were there for about two, three weeks, I think it was, and me and my, my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, Claire, we were in Lecce, and Lecce is a very old-school, kind of southern Italian city, very old, beautiful, beautiful city, but still stuck in their ways. The dialect down there is very, very strong as well, so we've transitioned from Genoa, which is a beautiful cosmopolitan city by the ocean, to Lecce, which is close actually to where my dad is from down in Puglia uh, in southern Italy, which is a very old school, uh, strict kind of Italian city. And this president, that, that, that he, he was a crazy guy anyway, an old guy, used to wear a blazer all the time. And I hadn't been paid for, for three weeks, I think it was. So I've gone up to his office and he's got this old office not at the stadium, it was, I, don't, I can't remember where it was, but where their offices were. And he's opened the door in his blazer and he's got a pistol tucked in his belt. <laughs> Jesus. Here. Which I, I don't know if he meant to show me or it just accidentally <laughs> opened a little bit. My wife didn't see it, so I kind of thought, What's happening? What am I going into here? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I've sat down at his table and I'm trying to explain. Was that for protection or intimidation? I, I think it was for a little bit of both. Right. I, I really do. You sure it wasn't a water pistol? Maybe it was normal down there. That's what the old guys did. They carried pistols around with them. But uh, <laughs> he was a very extravagant guy. Oh, um, so I sat down. I said, explain to him in my broken Italian um, that I hadn't been paid in three weeks. So he said, hey, it's, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. I said, no, actually, it is a problem. I'm pretty hungry and I want to go out and <laughs> I want to get some groceries and stuff. And he said, don't worry, we'll, we'll sort it out. So he said, uh, what what grocery store do you, do you shop in? So I said, pardon? So he said, what's your closest grocery store? So I'm explaining this to my wife because I, I don't actually know. She said, well, it's this one or whatever it was. So we, we explained that our local grocery store was called this. And he said, okay, no problem. He says, you go there tomorrow, 6 o'clock uh, in the evening, the manager will meet you. So I'm looking at my wife going, he's telling me that we've got to go down there tomorrow and that we'll be looked after in a bloody grocery store. <laughs> so I'm, I'm asking if I'm understanding him right and he's broken. Yeah, <laughs> So you sure I turn up at this grocery store and I don't need to turn up with any money? Sukuro, no, you go down there. It's going to be okay. He's a good friend of mine. So we turn up at this grocery store. I'm walking out of this office laughing my head. I still haven't got no money or wages. We go to this grocery store the next day. The manager turns up with a like really grim look on his face. and um, So I explained to him what the president had said from Lecce. So he said, okay, no problem. Take what you want. So me and my wife grabbed two trolleys each. You're being we're, paid in food. We're walking around the grocery store. <laughs> paid in food. Lobbing yeah. champagne, lobster, <laughs> everything. We've got like trolleys up to here. And we just walk, we get to the, to the actual aisle where you have to pay the checkout. And we just walk straight through. Really? Yeah. This poor grocery store owner is being terrorized. He probably by was this, either getting this... strong arm from yeah, the, exactly. yeah, <laughs> yeah. the pistoled president or yeah. I can't make any I money from these assholes. And literally, my money yeah. came in later that week and I was already on the phone back to England saying, get me, get out, me out, out of here. Yeah. Well, one thing about ownership, <laughs> one thing about ownership, I mean, everybody's different. There's different types of ownership. I mean, yeah. Arsenal, you've got the Cronky situation where he owns different, multiple teams, comes from a yeah. massive amount of wealth. Then you have the smaller guys that come into it and they, they love it. It's a hobby for them almost. Um, then you got the Arabs are coming in as yep. a, you know not it's only a money, hobby, but money. it's oil money and it's also giving a, a positive um, voice yeah. for them to uh, you know give out worldwide um, in a more positive way because they get a lot of negative media, obviously. And then uh, we had some interesting ones at Ipswich too. Just uh, old, how many were there over your? How many, you have what seventeen? No, how long? How well, there's there? a Cobble family at Ipswich uh, for years. They were involved with their sheep shanks after that. Um, right. West Ham had a, several different owners um, when I was there, and then also since then as well, right down to the Icelandic yeah, guy who right, sold bankers, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I exactly. think he's changed a lot as well, uh, the ownership. Like back in the day, even my previous club before coming over here to Toronto, Preston, was uh, an owner that was pretty well to do in, in the community. So I think we're going away from that now where you have select owners 
as you used to play for at Ipswich, even at QPR. There was a local guy that had an interest in the club or supported the club um, when he was younger or his family were involved with the club. We're, we're going away from that now. You're not seeing many community-owned clubs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit of a detriment to the way football's going in, in England at the moment yeah. because with these revolving doors of head coaches just coming and going through the system, there's not that that close-knit relationship with the community that might have an affiliation or respect with the head coach that's in charge. Mm -hmm. These owners don't care. They just Mm -hmm. see the money that they're about to or going to lose if their team are not being successful or not staying in the Premier League. It's important, I think, I mean, when the owners are at games and especially when they're supporting it because they they expect the fans to support it. Good and bad, by the way. Good and bad, right. So the the owner should be there uh, supporting. At Ipswich, I mean, obviously, it's it's a it's a local club. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's a big club, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's smaller, right? Yeah. But when you were there, were they really involved in the day to day? Did you know the owner by name, for example? Well, David Sheepshanks was certainly involved from day to day. Um, Had a a great hands on with the club as well, and moved on to the FA uh, after that. Um, The Cobbles. I mean, they brought in Bobby Robson, um, Bobby Ferguson, um, John Duncan. I believe he was hired by the Cobble family. Um, they hired good football people, and they were they would let Bobby Robson and uh, and them uh, run the footballing operation. They knew what they they were they were good at. There's some meddling ones that uh, can sometimes make things difficult. Mm-hmm. Like at Arsenal, I got to say, I mean, Josh Cronkey, the son of uh, the owner. Um, is part of the board. Um, and he said that uh, Lundberg is part of the Arsenal DNA. How the frickin' hell does he know what the Arsenal DNA is? <laughs> Seriously. It's a good point, yeah. yeah. Right? He, he's daddy's boy. He's just arrived there. Yeah, come Hasn't on. been involved for years. And But who cares if they are part of the DNA? You heard that with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at United. He knows the United way. What does that even mean? Can he coach football teams? You know? Mourinho didn't have Chelsea DNA. Pretty successful. You know, Conte right. didn't have, well, I guess he had Juve DNA <laughs> to say, but you know, you don't need the DNA to be successful. It helps, of course, but compare United or compare Liverpool or wherever in the 80s to 2019, different clubs mm-hmm. entirely. Mm-hmm. It's crap. The narrative changes all the time. It all depends. You, you, oh, we need a local guy. We need somebody, a former player. We need somebody with the DNA. We need, a, you know, now we need to change and go to a big name to draw people in. And it constantly changes all the time. Um, it's nice if it can work. Obviously, oh, the, the legend comes in. Frank Lampard at Chelsea, you know, it's, it's working pretty well despite this weekend's result. Well, oh, it, great it, result. it looks great, right? But it, <laughs> I don't think you need DNA to be a successful coach, do you? No. Well, just look at Jurgen Klopp. Prime example, yeah, exactly. Klopp didn't have any Liverpool DNA, but he brought his own philosophy, his staff in with him, and implemented it in a way that the the fans could relate to. They're a very hard-working team. They know it's a blue-collar town, Liverpool, very uh, working class. And Klopp, I think, really, really pushed his philosophy that way as well. He wanted a a very kind of hard-pressing team. He calls it heavy metal football, which... uh, the Liverpool fans from back in the day loved watching sexy football from the Dalglish era, the Bob Paisley days, where they used to play out of the back. That's not saying Liverpool don't play out the back now, but they strangle teams now. They actually put them under so much pressure. They turn over the ball, the opponents a lot, whether it be at Anfield, where they haven't lost in I don't know how long now, mm-hmm. to even away from home where they're scraping victories away from home. They don't give up this attitude, which I think relates really well with the Scousers. So when we talk about DNA, you're really it should be the DNA of the staff, the players you have available yes, to course. you, right? And play to the strengths of those particular players. Exactly. Sorry had a bit of a problem when he came across uh, to England with Chelsea. I mean, he played a fantastic style at Na- uh, Naples yep. and uh, comes there, even brought a couple of his own players and couldn't Try to implement quite it. get that yeah. same type of energy and uh, brilliance that they did uh, he had in Italy. Yes. Uh, you mentioned Lundberg. Did you hear the Paul Scholes comments this weekend? Yeah, Paul Scholes, who I love listening because he's so miserable. Right? He's just an angry, bitter man. Right? And <laughs> maybe that's how he is. But this week, you know, Lundberg's in his first game in charge of Arsenal and he's wearing a tracksuit on the sidelines. And that is not, mm-hmm. not good enough for, for Paul Scholes, who is saying, you know, what, what kind of you know, message is he sending wearing a tracksuit on the sidelines? 
<laughs> do you think Lundberg and Scorsese had some battles in the field, maybe, and this is you know, translating through to his media work now? He's just Lundberg was just such a good-looking guy compared to Scorsese. <laughs> it's, it's probably it. He was, an, it right? he was an Armani model. Uh, yeah, he Lundberg. was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, underwear, right? Yeah. Can you imagine Scorsese? He would have. It wouldn't. Have, I don't want to see yeah. that. I don't no. want to see Lundberg in fairness. But Scorsese, yeah, well, that's right. But especially yeah. Scorsese, Scorsese modeled uh, balaclavas, I think. <laughs> <laughs> But what a player, by the way. How One of the he? most I mean, underrated w- players yeah. that England have ever produced. And like uh, your, your, your average to elite fan knows the quality that Scozy brought to the table. But if you ask specific players about player, players, team, not teammates, but players they played against opposition... Like even the likes of Iniesta, Xavi. Xavi was going to say he said he's the best player he ever played Paul against, Scholes. yeah, which is incredible to see. Yeah. Right? And and Sven played him on the left wing. Remember Wenger said incredible. he had he had incredible. a dark side. Wenger, what's that? Sorry, he says Scholes has a dark side. Yeah, yeah, he does. Right, actually, I mean, was yeah. there a more competitive player to play against? Well, Roy Keane. Well, sure, yeah. but he was ultra competitive. He was an angry though. little ginger man. Yeah, yeah, so it was. I didn't want to mention the ginger. <laughs> I didn't want to mention that because. Because <laughs> what? Who cares? It's a dying. They can make it up to be angry. That's what I'm saying. It's to be angry. I've got less gingers got, all the time. My, my ginger friends are usually the ones that start fights. Put it that way. And Dev behind the glass there. Right. I'm wearing a hat right now, and so would I, Vice Ginger. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. My beard comes through ginger actually after yeah. a while. My, my Celtic roots. Right. So I've got nothing against gingers, but yeah. they can be angry. Yes. Is yeah. what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> I heard a good one the other day when some guy said, uh, talking about something being popular and it wasn't very popular. He says, that's as popular as ginger hair dye. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good point. I don't know. Yeah. You don't see it often. No. Okay. Isn't that what President Trump uses? Oh, <laughs> he geez. uses something. I think, I think girls can carry ginger a lot better than, than guys, though. Yes. Can't they? A good red-headed Irish girl? Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> Actually, speaking about ginger, isn't David... Uh, um, the, uh, what? Duchovny. Uh, what? I don't know. Bentley. Throw uh, <laughs> some Davids out there. I'm just saying David something. David Martin. Oh, David Martin, that's right. What a story that was this what weekend. What a start, yeah. yeah what a, making his debut in the Premier League at 33 years of age for West Ham, the son of Alvin Martin. Legend. 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 Tough as nails. And he went up in the stand after the game, about 10 rows, and was giving his dad a hug. I, I tell you, speaking of football, when we were talking with Victor about emotions, like it, that stuff just is brilliant. And this it's is just, a family club, right, West Ham? I mean, obviously you know it better than many, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps less now than in the past, but when Alvin Martin played there, it was very much so. Yeah. So this kid grew up at the training ground, yeah. in the stands, in, in the players' lounge, and had to get that chance. You can understand the emotion Incredible. he showed. I mean, he was at Milton Keynes for quite a long time. He played over 300 games at, at lower divisions, and just the way the stars aligned with some injuries. And and, and, and Roberto being crap. Right. And Do you remember him from last year, by the way? David Martin, FA Cup? We had FA Cup. He was playing for Millwall. Was he really? Yes. That shocker. Remember from across? Through, went through his hands. I can barely remember can yesterday. Back yeah. post. It was like the last moments of the game. Yeah. Yes, now I remember. We had it. Yeah, it was when we were right. doing the sports net. Um, the kind big, of the goal rush. The big round. Yeah. yeah that I remember And somebody experience. said on Twitter about, because he's got a picture of David yeah. kissing the West Ham badge yeah. and the Millwall fans. Not happy. Not happy. <laughs> Not happy. Strange that, isn't it? Yeah. He threw one in for Millwall, and then he gets a clean sheet at, uh, at oh, Chelsea. Good for him. You yeah. know, making debut. Was that his debut? It was his Premier League years debut. Of age. In the Premier yeah. League against Chelsea. At Chelsea. Clean it's a sheet. Tough place three to go. points. Some saving his manager's nice job. Yeah. 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 Yeah, maybe saving his manager's job. We don't see many late bloomers um, in the Premier League nowadays. I mean, we go back to... When we were playing, Ian Wright was a late bloomer. Yeah. yeah. Jamie Vardy. Jamie Vardy would be one of the most recent. But yeah. um, there's not many guys that so right, come into right the league. So blossomed at Palace or Ian after? Wright, so Ian Wright was in a little bit of trouble in his younger days. <laughs> he admits that. Yeah. Went off the rails a little bit. Played non-league for, for a bit. Then he actually mm-hmm. went to Crystal Palace. And I don't know if you remember that Crystal Palace team from back in the day, him and Mark Bright mm-hmm. played a couple of cup finals against Manchester United. Yeah. And Nigel did, Martin was in the well. right? Nigel, Nigel Martin, Martin with yeah. a moustache. Mm-hmm. And then he got his 
big move to to Crystal uh, to Arsenal from Crystal Palace, and his career just one took of the off greatest like ever, that. one of the greatest finishers, despite having no pace. Players, <laughs> so they right, say. Great guy, great yeah. guy as well. He scored great. a few against me. Yeah, he was great. And then he came to West Ham. Yes. And, uh, and he's one of my favorite Lee. analysts too. He's hilarious. Oh, he's fantastic. so good. Knowledgeable. Has, uh, doesn't care about upsetting people. And, uh, yeah. He's actually in the jungle at the moment. He is, yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Harry won last year. He, yeah. took, he took the lads to uh, a Lionel Richie concert, sitting front row. And uh, Lionel is up on stage. He's a great live show to it as well, by the way. I bet he is. Yeah. yeah. And. Uh, Righty disappears. Next thing I know, it's dancing on the ceiling, and, he, and here comes Righty off the side of the stage, and him and Lionel are just hammering That's it. Incredible! And we're like, that is incredible. We didn't, you didn't tell us he was going up there, and all of a sudden, him and Lionel are up there singing, dancing on the Please ceiling. Please tell me, John Moncourt didn't get up there. No, naked, yeah, got naked. Yeah, took all his clothes off. Yeah, but I think I think Lionel thought he was only going to sing a little bit, like a like a verse or but something like up that. There. He stayed up there because he can sing, right? Can he, Righty? Oh yeah, no, he's really good. He's decent. He's yeah, yeah. yeah. What's wow. his favorite uh, karaoke one? He did really well. Uh, Me and Mrs. Jones. Oh, it's my mum dad's wedding song. Yeah, he, does, well, he did not that very well. Alone, is it? Yeah, and he, actually, <laughs> when he was singing that, I think Monks was in the back. He was stuffed beside the beyond the, uh, the the marquee, naked with his butt hanging up in the air. <laughs> really? Yeah, another Me another and naked Mrs. Mrs. Jones. Jones. <laughs> It's normal for him. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, these are the stories you might not get in other podcasts. The day no. Ian Wright sang with Lionel Richie. Yeah. Another John Monker naked story and Danny DiCchio's parents' wedding song. <laughs> exactly. See? Um, listen, we're almost out of time here, fellas. We've got time now for, for a few minutes to get to some, some listener feedback. Well, not mm-hmm. feedback questions. Some good questions, actually. Uh, we should probably start with Dan Wong says. Um, you might recognize his name because he's also our producer. But he's been on our case to answer this question for weeks now. Well, this morning. This morning, actually. But um, he's very confused about loan deals and how loan deals work. Um, who pays what? What is the structure of the loan deal? Can you explain? Well, I, I went on loan a few times. I was a young lad at Ipswich and was sent on loan to Colchester, uh, how that deal was. I mean, they are different depending on uh, the structure of the deal. Um, Colchester were in the lower divisions, so uh, I didn't have to play against the parent club. Uh, they just basically paid my wages while I was on loan there for the, for the couple months. Um, I think that at that time there was a maximum of a two-month loan deal during the season. You couldn't stay there any longer, um, and it's pretty simple. Same when I went with Chelsea on loan. Uh, it was a month loan. Uh, they just took took the wages. Now, we've seen loans from clubs like Man City who are paying £100,000 a week, say, or, or something in that region. The clubs that they're loaned to can't afford to pay that, not entirely. So a rich club in Man City can say, well, okay, we'll pay – 70 grand of it you pick up 30 or whatever the problem I have with the Premier League is that if a team loans team players out like Chelsea do multiple players uh, across uh, different leagues then when you do play against that parent club that that player can't play but that player then can play against Manchester United or or whoever one of your rivals Um, so if you stack these teams with your your loan players um, they to, can help you in points more, against your rivals, right? So you, they're actually helping yeah. you by playing um, against those side sides when they can't play against you. But those not playing your parent club—that's the deal between the two clubs, right? It's not a yes. lone rule per se. Should yes. that be banned? That that rule? Do you think? I mean, it's hard. To, you can just say, "Oh, he's injured, can't play this game," right? So it's hard to, to police mm. that, I suppose. Well, the problem is, is if the player that you've sent out on loan suddenly plays against his home team, he's team he's owned by and scores the winner against your team then you're not only answering your fans but you're going to walk upstairs into the boardroom afterwards and speak to your president and say those three points could cost us a Champions League place Europa place or even Mm. the title but would that happen so yes. you, so so <laughs> do you think that it helps from the integrity of the game yes if they're not playing and they can't no and questions also, could be asked I also feel that a lot of players do not want to play against their parent club you know Mm-hmm. Uh, unless they're on a season-long loan, which most of the Premier League mm-hmm. clubs are, are doing now, more often than not, when it's younger players going out on loan, just to answer Dan's question, is to get experience. It's a great environment for younger players. Myself, I went out on loan to Wellingtown when I was really young, at 16, 17, playing against grown-ass men, kicking me up in the air. 
but also mm-hmm. sitting in the changing room, the locker room with guys that this is their living. This is what they're training for. They have a part-time job, but they need the win bonuses. This is what they do every day. So you're kind of in an environment where maybe if you're playing in the reserves, it's not as serious. It does The result doesn't mean everything. But when you're in an environment where you're playing with grown-ass men, fighting for their, their career, but also fighting for win bonuses, having mm. to travel up north or around the country when they've got a part-time job that they have to deal with as well. So that was a big, big learning curve for me, going out on loan, playing for Welling, going out on loan, playing for Barnet in the league, having so almost to prepare. The, almost the reality of what it is for lower divisions yep. and non-league players and how you can easily get stifled. In and also that, on the yeah. counter to that, for younger players, sometimes clubs send them out to lower league teams to say, okay, this is what it's like if you don't pull your finger out. This okay, is where you could possibly end up. So you have to yeah. start performing. Otherwise, your this career is, is slowly going like. to snowball yeah. downhill and you're going to end up at a lower league club where you do not have the facilities, the resources that you're accustomed to at this beautiful Premier League club mm-hmm. or championship club that have fantastic training grounds now. So with with the wages, as Craig said, it's taken over by the club. If it's a, a, a really small club, then the Premier League club will probably take on the the wage and just mm-hmm. send the player down for games. Mm-hmm. He'll still train at the Premier League club with the reserves or whatever. Um, the insurance is all taken care of by the parent club as well. It's just a loan for games. Mm-hmm. And it's great, amazing for experience. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yep. Yeah. And they watch you because, I mean, I went to Colchester. I was only a teenager in 19, I believe, 18, 19. Um, you know, the scouts are Ipswich or they're there every every game yep. and they're watching you closely. And it, well, you it, get scouted it, the most. Yeah, yeah. And it went well. And then in the offseason and next year, I started with the Ipswich side. So it was an opportunity to play competitive in front of a crowd, tough circumstances. And if you can handle that, then... They're watching you very closely and think you can make the next stay, step. 1988, Tunbridge Wells Rugby Club, under-14s. My oh, dad was yes. coaching, right? And, and that, that league at the time... the team? Well, no. <laughs> it's, it's far worse than that. It's far worse than oh. that. Oh, yeah. So at the time, the league was, you know, a lot of clubs couldn't put together a full 15 at that age group, right? So they needed to borrow players. And because I was... You know, my dad was a coach of our team, you know, he felt a lot easier saying, hey kid you're playing for them today <laughs> on a regular basis and I oh. fucking hated it and I was just like I mean I was never a great player to begin with but I could tackle I just let guys brush past me I put no effort in at all yeah. and I used to just dread it thinking please please have a full team so you your know, dad traded please you have... to the opponent yeah he loaned me out game day he loaned me out on game day it was he, awful he knew you well <laughs> <laughs> I know, looking back now Maybe it was more tactical. Did you always lose? <laughs> did, did you always lose? Um, frequently. Right. Yeah, frequently. Yeah. And yeah. It's, I was happy to see one of my mates sprint past me without putting any effort in. I despised it. Despised now it, I understand so. all these deep yeah. lying emotions that you have shown. I know. Yeah. Me and my old man did go to therapy. You're adopted too. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, Nothing wrong with that. that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, another question here we got uh, from uh, at Brady Reed uh, to you two. Uh, did you foresee the potential that you would eventually become an analyst or coach within the game before your playing career came to an end? At what point did you think I'm going to be on TV, Deech? Never. Was it, no, it was no. it was going to coaching. I've done a sure. couple of things in England, um, like on Sky Sports, Soccer AM, and some other TV shows, but it was never a real interest of me in my early stages because mm. when you're young you're just you're just playing and, and you, your career's going to last career's forever going to last forever so yeah it was only when i came mm. over here and i think i was playing in the first year that you actually got me on the footy show and i had done a little bit of stuff with yeah, that's right. yeah. you have a lot you have a lot to thank me awful, for Deech. Yeah. Give you your break <laughs> <laughs> but no i was your accent softened according to trevor sinclair yes awesome. yeah when you first started on the footy show for the syria and the premier league too no one understood you were really it's such a strong accent it yeah. really was and you, was, you, you and carl robinson strong, but came I guess on nothing. right yeah and he had the strong welsh accent wasn't that strong actually yeah. in fairness yeah. but uh yeah that's right it's a long time ago now 2008 i think it was we got you yes. for the first time right but you craig i mean you you retired around 2002, 2002 right um you've been on tv before then well yeah and in, in i mean still later parts of my career but in 98 i got asked uh, by tsn to do the world cup for france 
And uh, I thought it was a great opportunity, sacrificing the small off-season that you'd have uh, to do cover the World Cup and to see whether, first of all, it was decent at it and, second of all, whether I liked it. Uh, and, and I did. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was something different. It was challenging. It was uh, not quite like playing football, but when you're doing live TV, you get a little bit of a buzz from it. And there was, you Who's know— Who's hosting— in that first was it Vic, was it Vic, Router. Vic Router, right? Vic Router, okay. yeah. Legend, yeah. Legend. He's been there for forever. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot of time for Vic. Um so that went well and then uh, I did the same for Euro two thousand. And then I did the World Cup two thousand and two, retired at that stage, and then was offered a position with uh, the the Premier League coverage at Sportsnet by Scott Moore. So it was something I thought that maybe it was something I could get into after and uh, and it worked out pretty well. Um for twenty until years. recently. <laughs> But whatever. <laughs> I'd love to do the World yeah. Cup or like a, a big major tournament. Yeah. Like the play by play. I'd love to do that. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I think I would enjoy that more than actual sitting behind the desk and analyzing. Yeah. Right. Doing you know, the, you know, the, di- the difficult yes, part color. about uh, doing World Cup teaches uh, is time. Yes. Um, there's so many commercials in this very small window of time and in the, in the, which of these companies have to get their money back yeah. from the massive money that they pay for the rights. Um, so when you have 30 seconds to dissect something. Um, the formations of the Japan oh, national right, team. Right, right. It's just, it's almost impossible yeah. uh, to do it properly. I remember John Herdman coming into CBC in 2014 and uh, we had beautiful screens and opportunities yeah. to do great things. And he thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity to, you know, to re-talk about tactical stuff in, in the game. And, and I said, yeah, well, but you're going to have about 20 seconds. And quite honestly, nobody really gives a shit, John, because they just want to make their money back. And, and by the way, CBC is out of the, at least until 2030. So, you know, you can understand where they're coming from. But as far as trying to, you know, influence or teach people, uh, uh, some of it was, uh, it's, Is it, isn't that when awesome. a, a certain person we can't name for a tantrum on, on the screen or just off a screen. Who's that you're talking about? <laughs> There's been a couple of those I'm trying to think of. Um, well, but yeah, I think person, it was, uh, wasn't getting enough um, airtime. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> oh, that one. Yeah, but that yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. A pen was thrown, perhaps. Yeah. 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 But no, that, the, the actual game by game kind of commentary interests me more because watching different games and just seeing the different formations and how they play, I'm kind of more interested in giving... That information, or given my opinion, so on like it, a color, so, a color, color type commentary. Role. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I prefer to do that. I'm more interested in that mm-hmm. than actually yeah. sitting by the desk and this is getting this a minute this is there actually, to dissect. Yeah. This is Deech putting himself out there, by the way. So all the, <laughs> no, uh, no, the no. One thing, one thing <laughs> that you do find though with color is is important that you really understand your play by play host next to you. Yeah, uh, know when to get in when you can, and also remember that um, you don't need to talk that much. Let the game breathe. Let the game okay. breathe. The pitchers are there and just come in with stuff that's interesting and uh, poignant at the time. Um, and getting that right balance is really important. I think in North America, we hear uh, too much of the, from the analyst um, at, at times. You're yeah, well, there for dead color. Air, dead air is, is a mortal sin in Canadian and North American broadcasting. Right. And right? a lot Whereas, of quick replays in soccer. It's boom, like, boom, well, boom. if you watch World Cup, Premier League, uh, it's a system that works really well. Don't get caught in a replay. Don't go in late. They'll wait five minutes before putting in a replay. In North America, even in 2007 during the Under-20 World Cup, the final, uh, Aguero scored, scores a goal. Well, they, they, they were not in a replay completely, but they didn't. the corner was taken to Aguero short. They come back out of a replay. There's Aguero hitting the ball. And I know FIFA were just really, really ticked off it. You know, here we are. One, I think the game finished 1-0, and we nearly missed it. So uh, it's a... It's a system and it's a way they do it. It's, it's don't break, don't break it. You don't have to be North American mm-hmm. show replays all the time and, and this sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's different and uh, just knowing who you're working with right down to the producer is obviously very important. Radio is the best. You do radio because, you know, you can get a couple of things wrong here and there and no yeah, one cares, knows, no one can yeah. tell, right? I did some color for uh, the fan. I didn't really enjoy it. I mean, great, great team we had there. Great, as Dan Riccio, great um, yeah, uh, play-by-play. Uh, but I just don't, I, I'm not tactically adequate to, to break down games as simple as that I found it very difficult didn't play the game um, don't find tactics particularly interesting mm-hmm. and when you're doing that color you need to be able to break down a game yeah. and I, I found that a real challenge whereas well that's because you didn't feel comfortable with that role yeah precisely doing play by play I've done that a few times yeah. it's very different because you don't have to be an expert per se yeah. you, no. can, you can let the analyst be that yeah 
Um, yeah. But yeah, balance. It's, it's balanced. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, just being an analyst in general on, on any kind of show, there's a real art to it on TV. Because mm-hmm. like I said, you have two minutes or if you're lucky to get to a topic. Brevity is so important. Be concise, but get the message across. Mm-hmm. It's not that easy. No. We actually had a thing years ago at the score. Um, it was during the Drafted show. And Drafted was basically they'd have like a, like a reality TV show and they're trying to find the next sports broadcaster. Right. And we had this event at a bar downtown and we had this highlight booth. And anyone could come in, just viewers, fans would come in and, and do a play-by-play, like a highlight pack, a two-minute highlight pack. And it was hilarious. These guys, these big sports guys, all you know, all this, all the mouth, yeah. and they'd just be terrible. And they'd come out saying, that's a lot harder than I thought it would be. Wow, that's so difficult. It's so quick. Yeah. And they, the, the pack moves so quickly. Yeah. It really is. A, it's not that easy. No. Yeah, and if you miss a, miss one of the plays and you look you're up screwed and you're up. three ahead. Or you, or you get the wrong script. It happens all the time. That's right. Every network I've been, it happens. You know, you get some script writer rushing, and they give you a script, and you're reading it. Often at the sports net, we're seeing these packs for the first time live on TV. Yeah, they just throw and, a and script you, in and front okay, of you. And, and it's, uh, you know, Sergio Aguero. I said, wait a minute, that's not even Man City. What the <laughs> hell? And then you'd often, you'll bail me, or you'll bail me out. No, sure. I'm so, like, oh, Christ. And we'd, yeah. we'd have fun with it, but yeah. it can really throw you for your loop, that's for yeah. sure. It happens a lot. It does. Yeah, we like being thrown for a loop. <laughs> often thrown for a loop on this podcast. Um, yeah. We're out of time. That was, a, that was a fun one. Uh, Victor Montagliani, thank you so much. That was a really interesting chat. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Great we're promoting Canadians do as well because, I mean, Victor has uh, done incredibly well um, being part of that. Obviously, the timing of uh, FIFA, CONCACAF, the corruption. Uh, tough time to take tough over. Time. It, was, it was a tough time, but also a really you know good bet with a Canadian uh, and uh, with things he's done to make uh, CONCACAF more transparent. Uh, I wish it was more transparent. Uh, when I was playing, Coca Cola, can imagine. Yeah, with Jack Warner in charge, uh, we knew we were playing against at least twelve different people. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, sad, so. really sad. Mm-hmm. Um, Christmas is approaching. We will be announcing shortly uh, a little live podcast stroke mm. party in Toronto. Um, so make sure you, you follow our social streams: Twitter, Thirty Underscore Prime. Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. It's Footy Prime, the podcast. Email us at any time, Podcast at gmail.com. And as I mentioned, soon, the next, we're hoping right there, next couple of weeks. Next couple of weeks. We'll confirm soon. Uh, yeah. A bit of a piss up and a live live podcast from, uh, from a local establishment. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, fellas, thanks so much. Craig Forrest, Danny Dickio, Dan Wong. Death behind the glass. Your hair's great, man. It is. There's nothing wrong with that at all. As popular as ginger hair dye. Cheers for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.